Section number 18 of the Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Burke. The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Chapter 13 Animal Life in the Sea. The primitive idea of the ocean was that it was a vast desert, and a strange disbelief in its being inhabited by more than the very few forms that everybody was compelled to recognize persisted up to quite modern times among those who should have known better. Pliny boldly asserted, for example, that nothing remained in the Mediterranean Sea unknown to him after he had made a list of 176 marine animals. But now we know that the sea teems with living beings as densely as do the fresh waters or the air. In it began the life of the globe, for the fossil records of the rocks show that the first animals lived in the ocean, and that ages passed before any of them began to people the newly formed lands and breathe the atmosphere instead of the air and the water. And, abundant as oceanic life now is, the Paleozoic seas held immensely greater hordes, of which many forms were giants as compared with those of our day. Some of the old, straight-chambered shells were twelve feet long, and I have seen fossil ammonites, extinct relatives of our coiled pearly nautilus, which, when alive, must have been too heavy for a man to lift. The fishes, too, could tell great stories of the glory of their ancestors in size and strength and numbers. Some of them wore solid coats of mail upon their heads, and could do battle even with the huge swimming reptiles that were the dreaded tyrants of the Mesozoic deep. Life in the ocean in those old geologic days was a long guerrilla warfare, every animal guarding against attack, and at the same time watching sharply for an opportunity to seize and prey upon some weaker companion. As for the foraminifers and other microscopic creatures, they were countless, and their skeletons, singly invisible, have by accumulation built up great masses of rock, like the chalk beds of England and France. Though lessened in numbers and reduced in size, because the land has gradually won over to its side many sorts of animals which in former ages were exclusively confined to the water, and for other reasons, the sea still holds its share of every branch and class, except birds, and it may almost claim some of them, such as the albatross, penguins, and petrels, and a majority of the orders of animal life. Glance at the catalogue. Foraminifers, sponges, and polyps are chiefly confined to salt water. Starfishes, urchins, or sea eggs, and the like, wholly so. Mollusks, next higher, are principally oceanic, and the majority of the crabs inhabit salt water. Among the last-named one species, the common horsefoot, Limulus, of our shores, remains as the solitary representative of that immense and varied group, the trilobites, which so crowded the Paleozoic sea bottom, that some rocks, for instance the limestones of Iowa, are packed almost as full of their fossils as is a raisin box of raisins. None of the insects is truly marine, yet some of them are seafaring, truly, for they spend their lives on drifting sea-rack, or on beaches just out of reach of the tides. But most of the true worms are dwellers in the mud of seashores and sea-bottoms. No one knows of any land fishes, but I need not tell you that fishes throng in the fresh waters as well as in the salt, 
and that many species inhabit both at different seasons. In respect to the reptiles, of which the ancient oceans contain gigantic and horrid types, I do not know any now that are truly oceanic except the turtles, if you leave out the sea serpent, of which we hear so many wonderful and not quite satisfactory tales. You will hear of sea snakes in the East Indies, but they are only certain kinds of serpents which swim well, and pass the most of their time in the salt water, as several species of our own country do in the rivers and ponds. All the oriental sea snakes are venomous. It is in this manner, too, that we may count certain birds, such as the petrels, auks, penguins, albatrosses, frigate birds, and their kin, as belonging to the ocean. They spend all their life flying over the waves, seeking their food there, and some of them rarely go ashore except to lay their eggs and hatch their young on remote rocks, resting and sleeping on the billows when not busy at their hunting. In the highest rank of all, however, the mammals, several families are natives of the great deep, the whales, dolphins, and porpoises, the seals and walruses, and the manatees and dugongs. But all these must come to the surface to breathe not having gills like fishes, but true lungs. As it is only within the last thirty years that machinery suitable for deep-sea dredging has been invented, so it is only lately that we have been able to learn much as to the population of the ocean beneath the surface layer and marginal shallows. Now, by means of beam trawls, dredges, tangle bars, etc., worked by steam machinery on shipboard, Naturalists may scrape up the bottom ooze and obtain living objects or their bony relics at the depth of even 3,000 to 4,000 fathoms, or more than four miles, for living beings are found in these profound abysses. Many scientific expeditions, such as those of the English exploring steamer Challenger, about 1874, have carried out these dredging investigations, and the United States Fish Commission possesses the large, specially built, sea-going albatross, provided with all the necessary apparatus for deep-sea exploration. By means of these and other vessels, an enormous amount of study, all useful in ascertaining the habits and methods of reproduction of food fishes, has been carried on by American marine naturalists. It appears that as you go further and further from shore, and into deeper and deeper water, the fewer animals and plants are obtained, and that very few species indeed which live along shore are to be found also at a depth greater than about one hundred fathoms. Almost all animals, moreover, have a limited distribution in the sea, as is the case among those on land, though we cannot always, or perhaps often, say why the limits we find should exist. One sort of crab, or mollusk, or polyp appearing here, and another different one exclusively there, when the conditions seem to us very similar, and no barrier is perceptible. It is not easy to explain why a certain sort of cowrie, for example, should be found only along a particular strip of coast, when nothing that we can see prevents its extending its range much further. It is believed that the temperature of the water is the chief fact which sets these invisible boundaries to the wanderings of animals living near the surface, only a few of which are very widespread in their distribution. The direction and character of the ocean currents have much to do with the geographic distribution of oceanic life, as has been mentioned in Chapter 2. Now, in deep-sea life, the case is different. 
here temperature cannot be of so much account since only a short distance down the water becomes almost as cold as ice and preserves this uniform chill all around the globe the life found at a great depth too is very widespread instead of restricted in its range often occurring in two or more ocean basins but here the restriction is an up-and-down one rather than horizontal and the secret is found in the word pressure few animals are able to live both in the shallows and under the enormous weight of seawater three or four miles deep this has recently eighteen ninety seven been summed up very clearly by professor arthur p crouch in an article in the nineteenth century from which it will be worth while to quote a paragraph or two quote, the conditions under which they that is deep-sea animals have to live in the abysmal areas seems very unfavorable to animal existence the temperature at the bottom of the ocean is nearly down to freezing point and sometimes actually below it there is a total absence of light as far as sunlight is concerned and there is an enormous pressure reckoned at about one ton to the square inch in every one thousand fathoms which is one hundred sixty times greater than that of the atmosphere we live in at two thousand five hundred fathoms the pressure is thirty times more powerful than the steam pressure of a locomotive when drawing a train as late as eighteen eighty a leading zoologist explained the existence of deep-sea animals at such depths by assuming that their bodies were composed of solids and liquids of great density and contained no air this however is not the case with deep-sea fish which are provided with air-inflated swimming bladders if one of these fish in full chase after its prey happens to ascend beyond a certain level its bladder becomes distended with decreased pressure and carries it in spite of all its efforts still higher in its course in fact members of this unfortunate class are liable to become victims to the unusual accident of falling upwards and no doubt meet with a violent death soon after leaving their accustomed level and long before their bodies reach the surface End quote. the fauna of the deep sea with a few exceptions hitherto only known as fossils are new and specially modified forms of families and genera inhabiting shallow waters in modern times and have been driven down to the depths of the ocean by their more powerful rivals in the battle of life much as the ancient britons were compelled to withdraw to the barren and inaccessible fastness of wales some of their organs have undergone considerable modification in correspondence to the changed conditions of their new habitats thus down to nine hundred fathoms their eyes have generally become enlarged to make the best of the faint light which may possibly penetrate there after one thousand fathoms these organs are either still further enlarged or so greatly reduced that in some species they disappear altogether and are replaced by enormously long feelers the only light at great depths which would enable large eyes to be of any service is the phosphorescence given out by deep-sea animals we know that at the surface this light is often very powerful and sir wyville thompson has recorded one occasion on which the sea at night was a perfect blaze of phosphorescence so strong that lights and shadows were thrown on the sails and it was easy to read the smallest print it is thought possible by several naturalists that certain portions of the sea bottom may be as brilliantly illumined by this sort of light as the streets of a european city after sunset one of the most striking examples of this vertical distribution which forms layers of animal life as it were in the ocean from the abysses to the shallows 
is shown by the coral reefs the foundations of these polyp-built barriers or islands are laid by the millions of minute individuals of one solid heavy kind of coral which can flourish only in pretty deep water when these have reached their highest growth they cease to propagate there and a second kind comes and colonizes upon the summit of this massive foundation and carries the work a little farther up then these die off and a third kind plants itself upon the remains and carries the structure to the top near the surface of the sea where many surface corals corallines and various other limy and flinty plants and animals help to erect a dry reef upon which land vegetation can find a root-hold and where after a while men may dwell when these coral-built islands are ring-shaped they are called atolls and are believed to be living crowns about the summits of submerged mountains men make use of something in nearly every branch of ocean life from humblest to highest the lowest of all as i have already said are the foraminifers it is their skeletons which make up our common chalk a close ally of theirs is the sponge of which a dozen or so varieties are sold in the shops sponges come chiefly from the mediterranean the persian and ceylonese waters of the indian ocean and from the gulf coast of florida in the old world they are obtained chiefly by diving men who are trained from boyhood to this work go out to the sponge ground in boats on fine days fastening a netting bag about their waists and taking a heavy stone in their hands they dive head foremost to the bottom often twelve or fifteen fathoms below tear the sponges from the rocks and rise with a bagful to be dragged almost utterly exhausted into their boat often fainting immediately after this requires them to hold their breath under the water for two minutes or more but none but the most expert can do that and a diver does not live long in florida however the sponge gatherers do not dive but go in ships to where the sponges grow and then cruise about in small boats each of which contains two men one steers while the other leans over the side searching the bottom in order to see it plainly he has what he calls a water glass a common wooden pail the bottom of which is glass pressing this down into the water a few inches he thrusts in his face and can then perceive everything on the bottom with great distinctness when he sees a sponge he thrusts down a long stout pole on the end of which is a double hook like a small pitchfork set at right angles to the handle and drags up the captive the sponges having been obtained must be put through long operations of rotting beating rinsing drying and bleaching before their skeletons the serviceable part are fit for use only a few however out of the large number of species of sponges have any commercial value the limy skeletons of the coral polyps form what we term corals the round white ones and the variously branching ones may come from any one of several parts of the equatorial half of the globe and are of value chiefly as mantle ornaments the red coral of which necklaces and other bits of jewelry are made especially at naples is procured by divers about the shores of sicily and sardinia and its gathering cutting and mounting into ornaments form a flourishing industry in southern italy rising in the zoological scale to starfishes and sea urchins i can only say that the starfishes interest oystermen because they prey upon their oysters and the former often do enormous damage to planted beds especially in long island sound 
in the old days it was thought that medicines made out of the stars and the sea eggs were very potent in certain diseases the tripeng someone of several sorts of holothurian an elongated creature related to the starfish and covered with a prickly leathery hide so that it looks like a sort of sea cucumber which is dried and eaten by the chinese and malayans belongs here too considerable quantities of these queer food creatures are gathered by the chinese along the coasts of mexico southern california and the outlying islands and are sold in san francisco mainly for export to asia the sea urchin itself is eagerly sought as food by the indians of the american northwest coast coming to crustaceans do we not eat crabs gladly from the shedder to the huge lobster on the coast of maine whole villages of sea-pride people get their support almost wholly by catching lobsters and canning them to send abroad in virginia and north carolina at certain seasons hundreds of men are engaged in catching and shipping crabs for market and in louisiana large factories are devoted to canning shrimps which are also extensively used as food in the old world where they are cooked by parching or boiling and sold by peddlers in the streets this brings us to the mollusks in our glance at the useful animals of the ocean and to prove their importance it is enough to remind the reader that these include the shellfish of our coasts the oyster clam mussel scallop cockle and all the rest not a few i found by my long study of the subject when in eighteen seventy nine and eighteen eighty i was gathering statistics of the united states shell fisheries for the united states fish commission and the tenth census that at that time there were taken from our waters of oysters alone almost twenty-three million bushels each year worth to the oystermen about thirteen million five hundred thousand dollars during the twenty years that have elapsed since that investigation the figures of which you may obtain in full in my report to the tenth census upon the oyster industries these amounts have largely increased this business employs over one hundred thousand persons in this country alone and oysters clams and other shellfish are gathered all round the globe forming one of the most important of all natural supplies of food in the most thickly populated parts of the world the natural supply of oysters long ago ceased to suffice for the demand and artificial propagation and cultivation were resorted to and now prevail on both sides of the north atlantic and to a less degree elsewhere the romans away back in the days of horace raised oysters in ponds along the italian coast and eastern nations preserved the custom during the middle ages when europe was doing little except quarrelling and making pretty pictures on parchment more recently the french of the channel coast took it up and the english followed finding that their natural oyster and mussel beds were becoming exhausted the same fate has overtaken our oyster beds everywhere north of the chesapeake and largely there so that now nearly all the oysters brought to market are those which have been raised upon private planted beds which men own or lease and attend to as they do to estates on shore indeed it is common to speak of such underwater estates as farms an oyster farm may be conducted in two ways one is to place upon a certain space of bottom in some shallow bay as many young oysters as it will conveniently hold these young oysters generally hardly bigger than your thumbnail, are dredged in summer from certain reefs in deep water 
where the oysters are never allowed to grow to full size and to a large extent they are brought northward by the shipload from maryland and virginia which have more seed as it is called than they need for their own planting these young oysters protected from harm and having plenty of space to grow come to a proper size for market in about three years and are then gathered by their owners and sold another method is to spread old shells pebbles etc on the bottom to which the floating eggs emitted by adult oysters in the neighborhood adhere the thick catch of infant mollusks hatched from these captive eggs is then taken up and respread in a more scattered way upon new ground and is allowed to grow to maturity the oysters raised by either of these methods are of better appearance and taste as a rule than those that grow naturally because each has room enough to perfect its proportions mussels clams of many varieties and even sponges and peak shells are also cultivated to some extent each according to the plan its natural habits make advisable in this way certain great areas of favorable ocean bottom have become as valuable as the neighboring shoreland or even far more so if you compare acre for acre the yield of the crops below with those above the water line but mollusks are useful in many other ways than is human food as they are known to be the principal food of several valuable fishes enormous quantities are devoted to baiting hooks in both hand lining and trawling for cod and similar commercial species the quaint squids are mollusks and these are especially useful for bait in certain places and seasons and are taken in the north atlantic in vast numbers for that purpose the shells of mollusks are applied to a surprising variety of purposes from paving roads to making shirt studs while their natural beauty has suggested their utilization as ornaments in a hundred ways we cut them up by the million into buttons and various small objects such as parasol handles and polish and fashion them into all sorts of knick-knacks thus giving employment to thousands of persons many shiploads of shells are brought to new york from the west indies every year for such purposes i need not dwell upon this but turn to the interesting subject of pearls mother of pearl is the bright inside surface or nacre of the large oyster that gives us pearls which are themselves composed of the same substance formed in a nodule around some intruding substance like a grain of sand which irritates the mollusk skin until it is made smooth and comfortable by this iridescent coating bivalves yielding this beautiful substance exist in various parts of the world but in america the only fishery for the pearl oyster is in the gulf of california and that is by no means as productive as it used to be the season for pearl fishing on the pacific coast of mexico is from june to december but the diving can be done only in good weather and for about three hours at the time of low water since the tide there rises twenty feet which would make a large dive of itself and besides the currents are troublesome during high water at the right hour the mexicans go out in their canoes one man of the four or five in each canoe paddling while the rest scrutinize the bottom it may be rocky and weed-grown but the water is clear and their practiced eyes detect a single round oyster where you or i certainly would overlook a dozen of them then down a man goes and brings up his prize with perhaps some additional ones sixty or eighty feet is not too deep for these adventurous divers who will stay a whole minute upon the bottom no food is eaten by these men on the day they dive until their labor has been done 
Western Australia is another fruitful field for pearl oysters, and until a few years ago they were taken there by native blackfellows, diving without weights or any other assistance in any water not more than ten fathoms deep. The inshore shallows have now been so cleared of shells that the only profitable industry is to go down in deep water in diving dress and make a thorough clean-up of each patch where the shells seem numerous. The divers find it an interesting and curious world where they work, but one full of fright and peril. Some men who attempt it are so unnerved that they will never make a second descent. None can endure the practice long without ill health resulting and the native Australians will never enter a diver's dress, declining to go down where it is too deep to dive naked. As for the dangers, drowning by some accident to the apparatus, or through the stupidity of the boatmen above, is only one of them. The warm waters in which these men work are the home of the largest and most deadly sharks, and of various other submarine creatures one would rather not meet in their own element. Of them all, the sharks are most to be dreaded, especially by the naked men. As a rule, however, they are easily frightened away, or can be avoided by the clever swimmer who quickly stirs up the mud at the bottom, and rises in the fog before the dull shark discovers that he has gone. East Indians are said to fight sharks quite fearlessly, stabbing them with a knife as they roll over preparatory to a close attack. I have read a story to the effect that formerly the Mexican Indian divers on our western coast used to take down with them a stick of hard wood about two feet long and sharpened at both ends. When a shark was encountered from which they could not readily escape, they would snatch this weapon from their belts, grasp it in the middle, and thrust it dexterously crosswise into the widely distended mouth of the monster, open to seize them. To shut down his jaws upon such a skewer would undoubtedly discomfit a shark or anything else but when one thinks of the time, nerve, and sure aim it would require to accomplish this feat, he begins to doubt whether it really ever was tried. I advise you, therefore, to prove the story better than I have been able to, before you pin all your faith to it. An Australian pearl diver, writing about this matter in The Century magazine a few years ago, assures us that a fifteen-foot shark, magnified by the water and making a beeline for one, is sufficient to make the stoutest heart quake, in spite of the assertion that sharks have never been known to attack a man in a rubber diving dress. He adds, quote, Neither is the sight of a large turtle comforting when one does not know exactly what it is, and the coiling of a sea snake around one's legs, although it has only one's hands to bite at, is, to say the least, unpleasant. A little fish, called the stonefish, is one of the enemies of the diver. It seems to make its habitation under the pearl shell, as it is only when picking up a shell that anyone has been known to be bitten. I remember well the first time I was bitten by this spiteful member of the finny tribe. I dropped my bag of shells and hastened to the surface, but in this short space of time my hand and arm had so swollen that it was with difficulty I could get the dress off, and then was unable to work for three days, suffering intense pain the while. Afterward I learned that staying down a couple of hours after a bite will stop any further discomfort, the pressure of water causing much bleeding at the bitten part, and thus expelling the poison. End quote. All the oysters, when brought ashore, are opened in vats of water, and carefully examined for the pearls they may contain half-embedded in their mantles. 
but very few reward the diver with gems worth selling separately or otherwise than by weight as seed pearls many divers therefore do not themselves take the trouble of opening what they catch but sell them unopened at a few cents a dozen preferring the small and steady assured income to the chances of failure or a fortune the round flat beautiful shells are saved and their sale for mother-of-pearl work brings nearly as much money into the pearl-fishing communities in the course of a season as is derived from the pearls themselves what beauty as well as usefulness have shells and how wide is the science conchology that deals with them and tells us not only their structure and manner of life but interprets the part which their extraordinary forms ornaments colors and appendages play in their struggle for existence down in that populous green underworld of the waters i know a picturesque old house writes a charming pen in one of the early volumes of scribner's monthly that has a many-shelved pantry devoted to the exhibition and sale of shells collected in many a long voyage to the remotest parts of the five oceans apart from their scientific interest their associations with alien races and far-off countries how beautiful these shells are in themselves and how readily might the prevailing vulgarities and absurdities in the decoration of glass and porcelain be corrected by studying the ceramics of nature how for instance is our sense of cleanliness served and our appetite wooed by the extreme smoothness hardness of surface and pearly white of the oyster shell what decoration in the part that receives the viand what metallizing the surface or changing it into artificial marble or covering it up with pictures would take the place of the pure colorless shell every species of these shells has a principle of growth or law of form peculiar to itself and yet based upon some more general law of form common to other species in the comb of venus for instance the initial impulse of structure tends to produce a series of spines of a peculiar curvature and arranged after a certain order that involves the use of similar curves it is interesting to study the development of this simple principle into the complex and singular form of beauty comprised in the shell itself the idea being carried into the most minute particulars even the dark markings at the mouth being shaped like spines and every small projection on the surface evidently being an arrested development of spines in the murex haustellum on the contrary nodules take the place of spines in the m andivia an entirely different idea is developed notice the cross striations instead of prolonging themselves into cylindrically pointed spines as is the case of the venus's comb or bunching themselves into knobs as in the m haustellum they expand into wonderful foliated projections the edges of which are beautifully fluted like the leaves of the lettuce another fine effect is afforded by the different texture of the inside and outside surfaces down to the smallest foliation the inner parts exhibiting a polished pearly white and the outside a gray and wrinkled skin observe that however rough or dull of hue the outside of a shell its lips are always pure and often flushed with lovely color for as a rule and here is another hint to decorators nature distinguishes by some adornment the most significant parts of her creatures where life and use are centered the ocean indeed beautifies all it touches give it any rough shard and it will so roll it about and lick it with its waves and smooth it with their soft attrition that it will return you a polished and shapely nodule 
exhibiting all the beauty of color and surface of which the material is capable. End of section 18. An end of the Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll.